Between 1914 and 1920, over 8,500 people were wrongfully imprisoned in Canada. A new documentary, That Never Happened, Canada's First National Internment Operations, reveals the story of Canada's first national internment operations between those years, when over 88,000 people were forced to register and more than 8,500 were wrongfully imprisoned in concentration camps across Canada, not for anything that they had done, but because of where they came from. In 1954, the public records were destroyed, and in the 1980s, a few brave men and women began working to reclaim this chapter in history and ensure future generations would know about it. Uh, the director of That Never Happened, Canada's first national internment operations, uh, joins me right now. Ryan Boyko, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So tell me why we don't know about this story. Well, I think you just sort of touched on it in the mm -hmm. brief there, that uh, in 1954, all of the records were actually destroyed. And it's something that we get into in the documentary, but they were destroyed in such a way that, uh, you know, makes it a little bit suspect. And uh, they, all of the personal uh, documents that related to each individual, um, what what they were imprisoned for, how long they were there, what money they were owed or what money they, they had made during their uh, incarceration. Uh, all of those personal files were destroyed in 1954. And they weren't just destroyed, they were ordered to be burned in the downstairs furnace of the building uh, where the archives were held. So um, it's, it's a pretty complex issue. And because the people who were actually making those policy of the day are no longer with us, we, we, we can only speculate as to why they were destroyed. And we, and we talk about a couple of different options in the documentary. And briefly, just to give me a, a, an idea of what those options might have been. Uh, so one of, one of them is that they were destroyed so that no one could ever make a claim for compensation in the future. Mm -hmm. And so apparently in one of the folders in the, in the archives that are still there, there is a note um, stating that. Wow. It's always all about money, I guess, right? Yeah, it's all about money. So this story, though, for you has personal resonance on a couple of, of levels. As a teenager in Saskatchewan, um, from what I understand, and this is a, I pulled this from an article I read about you, uh, you didn't want anything really much to do with being Ukrainian. Is that uh, an yeah. accurate thing to say? Yeah, that, that's, that's an accurate thing. I mean, uh, I grew up in a, in a very um, Ukrainian household where we had to had to go and do all of the Ukrainian things, whether it was church, whether it was uh, Ukrainian language classes, whether it was Ukrainian dancing or Ukrainian events. And, and Saskatchewan's got a very strong Ukrainian community. And my parents were very involved. And it was like, for me, just as a, as a teenager, just another Ukrainian thing. I don't want to have to go and do this. And, uh, and you know, my, my dad said, hey, I'm going to see this uh, this Ukrainian film, you want to come and see it? And I said, no, I don't, I don't really want to go and see it. And he said, well, hey, it's, it's a film and the director is going to be there. And so is one of the people who's actually in the film. You want to come and see it with me now? Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, I'd love to go and love to go and see it because he knew I wanted to be an actor and a filmmaker. And, and so he basically knew what my currency was and that I would love to meet somebody who's actually out there making things. And uh, so I watched this documentary, and at that time, 
there wasn't as much research that had been done as, as what has been done now. And hopefully in the future, somebody else will be able to be on your show saying the same thing, that there wasn't as much research now as there is in <laughs> right. the future. But uh, at that point, it, it wasn't called Canada's first national internment operations. It, it was simply stated as the Ukrainian internment during World War One. And like you said, I grew up in, in Saskatchewan. All of my dad's friends were, you know, doctors, lawyers, businessmen. Uh, the premier of Saskatchewan was Ukrainian. So that was my understanding of what it was to be a Ukrainian man. Mm-hmm. And to see this and, and learn about the racism and the experiences that their parents and or grandparents had to endure in order for them to have that kind of life, Uh, I think that's something that really, really stuck with me. And did it hit you at that moment, or was it later in reflection? Uh, I think it was a little bit later in reflection. It it was shocking in that moment for me. Uh, But the next day, I went to my high school teacher. I said, can you tell us a little bit about the Ukrainian internment during World War I? And he said, you mean the Japanese internment during World War II? And I said, no, I mean the Ukrainian internment during World War I. And he looked at me and said, that never happened. Wow. And that stuck with you all the way through to uh, titling your film, uh, which is called That Never Happened, Canada's First National Internment Operations. And I'm speaking with the film's director, uh, Ryan Boyko. Uh, tell me about the backstory then. We've, we've touched on it a little bit, but let's, let's get right down to the nitty gritty. What do people know to set the table, to set the story up so that we can understand what's in your film? Sure. Uh, so the film... Because it's done uh, in modern times, it's an oral history. It's a memory history. There's no individuals who were actually interned that are still alive mm-hmm. that are interviewed in the film. Um, so it's, it's really the story of descendants. It's the story of championing for recognition. Uh, it's talking about the people that found out about this in, you know, even in the 70s, they, they were talking about it, but it wasn't really until the 1980s that a, a couple of people started really championing and, and going to the federal government and talking to people and saying, hey, this happened. Why don't we know about it? Why don't people know about it? Why isn't it taught in the schools? Uh, why isn't there some type of recognition or official apology or official something in in writing somewhere that says that this happened? Just just acknowledge it. Because and, even by the 1980s, there would have been not that many of the survivors left, right? Yeah, for sure. There there were several that were already gone. I mean, there were there were still quite a few that they were able to talk to uh, at that time. They were able to work with people in order in order to uh, to get that uh, information from the survivors uh, that were in those camps but a lot of those people were talking about it in the late 70s mm. and then um, the other thing that we found is that people didn't start actually talking about the fact that they were interned until they were in their late 70s early 80s or on their deathbeds or some some people took it with them to the grave and families would find out about it in, through cards or something in in their papers as they're going through paperwork, sometimes years or decades after the the parent or grandparent has passed away, and they're finding registration cards or um, certificate of parole release papers. And so we really kind of try and delve into that, into what what is the multi generational effect of 
locking people up, rounding people up, and taking away their their civil rights, their civil liberties, and uh, and how does it affect people a hundred years later? It's interesting because I think the idea that you don't find out about it if it was your grandfather or mother uh, until you go through their papers after they're gone would suggest a level of trauma. You know, they don't want to relive. They just tried to move on, put it in the past, don't talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. People people were afraid to talk about it. They were afraid to uh, take on the government. Um, as I mentioned earlier, some of the some of them had um, payments that were due, and we don't have any records of those payments because those are the records that were destroyed. Mm-hmm. But if say an individual died in the camp, well, he may have had you know twenty dollars coming to him. Where, where did that $20 go? Somebody escapes from the camp. Well, he may have had $5 coming to him. Where did that $5 go? Those kinds of things are are not really the reason that we need those records, but those are some of the records that have been clearly lost. And they were declared enemy aliens. So, I mean, again, this echoes uh, what happened to the Japanese people in uh, World War II. I mean, the the film and the story has a timely element to it, I guess, because we are seeing uh, internment camps again uh, in the United States now. Um, you know, what is, I think, hmm, I don't know what the question is here, that, but the, the idea of being labeled an enemy alien uh, is something that I think would probably stick with you and, and, and label you for the rest of your life. Yeah, and I think that goes back to why people didn't talk about mm-hmm. it. Um, they didn't want to be seen as enemies. They wanted to be seen as citizens. They yeah. wanted to be seen as people who were, who were here. I mean, these, the people that were labeled enemy aliens in the First World War, they were invited to Canada. Mm-hmm. They were invited uh, by the Minister of the Interior, uh, Clifford Sifton, to settle the West, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, and prevent annexation by the United States. So these people came in droves. They they came by the hundreds, by the thousands, and you know by the time World War One uh, broke out, there was I think something like eighty six thousand uh, people who identified as Ukrainian or were from Ukraine and or the Austro Hungarian Empire at the time, and so. When you look at when you look at it that way, it's it's pretty dramatic that these people were then labeled as enemies after they were invited guests, and so I think that there is a trauma, there is something that sticks with people, and uh, I think that it's the same for anybody who has been interned or wrongfully imprisoned. That there is a stigma that stays with you, and it, as you mentioned, it's not just. Um, the First World War internment operations, but part of the reason that the Second World War internment operations, which is Japanese and Italians that were interned, uh, the reason that that happened is, is people either forgot or they thought, you know what, it was so successful the first time economically, that let's just do it again. When we come back, we're going to continue speaking with Ryan Boyko. He is the director of That Never Happened, Canada's first national internment operations. Uh, I want to talk about what happened in the camps. There's backbreaking labor, and I think that uh, visitors to Banff National Park in Alberta might be surprised to uh, learn some of the history of that place as well. Stay with us.
you don't often hear the term concentration camps being used uh, in a Canadian context, but a new documentary called That Never Happened, Canada's First National Internment Operations, reveals the story of Canada's first national internment operations between 1914 and 20, when over 88,000 people were forced to register and more than 8,500 people were wrongly imprisoned. Uh, the director of the film is Ryan Boyko, and we've been talking about the Ukrainian experience during the First World War, the trauma that is uh, sort of incumbent on people that come out of these these camps. But let's talk about what happened when you were in the camps. I mean, this, uh, I, we use the word concentration camps, uh, which conjures up uh, a certain image. But tell me more sort of accurately uh, what happened sure. in these camps. Sure. So uh, this is something, this is, a, this is a term that we actually address in the film, the term concentration camp. Uh, and it's something that we need to be very mindful of. Uh, as you mentioned, it, it elicits um, death camp. It elicits World War II. It elicits Nazis. Um, that is not what we're talking about here. Right. This, this, this was not a extermination camp. This was, um, at the time, the term was concentration camp, and now the term is internment. And the reason it is internment is... Um, because of that sensitivity, mm -hmm. we don't we don't want to compare the two. We these are two very different episodes, um, but we do discuss that term. That concentration camp at the time meant that there was a concentration of people, and and we were putting these people together um, either for their safety or for the safety of the communities that felt threatened by them. And so they would be put into these internment camps all across Canada. Uh, there were internment camps from Nanaimo, B.C. to Halifax, Nova Scotia. There's uh, one receiving station right here in Toronto at uh, Stanley Barracks at the CNE. Uh, that was a place where people from Toronto who were seen as undesirable enemy aliens, they were rounded up, they were placed there. And they would stay there for sometimes a night, up to a week, before they were shipped out to their respective camps, wherever wherever they were being sent to. Uh, and that could be, you know, northern Ontario, Capuscasing, um, northern Quebec. There was a place called Spirit Lake, which is near the town of Amos. Um, the interesting thing about Spirit Lake is it disappeared from the map uh, after after the end of the uh, the First World War. So and and how would, so? How why why so? Well, they changed the name of the lake. Oh right, okay. Um, and so people would talk about having been interned at Spirit Lake, and no one could find it. So right. people thought that these people were crazy, uh, and it never happened. Yeah, making up stories. Yeah. Yeah, making up stories because they, they, you know, they had the location, but they didn't even have the name of the name of the of, of the lake right, and so. That was something that a lot of people had to struggle with was where where they were. Uh, you mentioned Banff. Banff actually has uh, two internment camps. There's one at Caven Basin, which is a national historic site where people go, they visit. Uh, there's a, a beautiful museum there. They used to have uh, hot springs, sulfur hot springs right there. Uh, and fortunately, since this incident occurred, um, there is now a an exhibit, a museum exhibit, a standalone exhibit um, at Caven Basin, which gives you a really solid history of what happened in these camps. 
Um, and then there was Castle Mountain, which is just outside of Banff proper, probably uh, maybe 20 kilometers north. And uh, they built the highway, the, the old number one highway that went through, and Castle Mountain was where their base camp was. And it is notorious for having been one of the hardest camps in the country. Um, you know, guards were not very nice to the prisoners. Uh, many prisoners tried to escape. Um, some prisoners did escape. Um, there were, you know, cruel acts of, of torture that have been um, found, documented. Uh, and at the time, they would have been calling it punishment, but it, it was really, it was torture. And we had people cramped living in little cabins, uh, you know, probably not particularly great accommodations. Can you talk just a little bit about the, the living quarters and, and, and how these people were forced to live? Yeah, so most of them across the country, it, it really varies camp by camp. Mm-hmm. So Castle Mountain, which I was just talking about, was for the most part all tents. I think there was one building that was built, but otherwise it was all tents. And you can imagine being living in a tent in December in Alberta. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's pretty cold. I mean, Alberta has snow right now. I mean, at the time, they probably wouldn't have had it yet, but uh, um, it, it would have been really cold. Uh, the places that did have barracks often had no insulation, so you'd basically looking at wood slats on prairie and having wind flying through, even though you might have a, a fire in the center of the of the room or a stove, yeah. um, you would still have wind whipping through those buildings. So it was very cold, very unpleasant, very harsh. Uh, but also, that's that's talking about the winters. But in the summers, you think about you know being out there. They didn't have mosquito repellent. They didn't have you know proper clothing. So a lot of these people would be you know, still working in the clothes that they were arrested in. And so when you think about that over a long mm-hmm. a long period of time, I mean, you know, it probably wouldn't have been pleasant for the, the smells of the prisoners either. Uh, it, it, it just seems so inhumane. I mean, when you talk about this, and you've screened this film uh, here and there, I suppose you've, you've uh, had talks and, and, and discussed it with people. What do people say? I mean, can people believe that this happened in Canada? Yeah, I think I think the the most common thing is the number of people who come away from it either having had a little bit of knowledge, which mm-hmm. is why they came to see the film, or have no idea and just said, "Hey, I really like the poster and I like right. I like the image and it, it seems interesting because I have no idea what it is and let's go watch it." Um, so a lot of the feedback is, I didn't know that. Um, why didn't I know that? Uh, I think this is very important. Uh, a lot of people saying, you know, thank you for bringing this out. Um, and, you know, one of, one of our, our film festival screenings, um, we had somebody from the United Nations who was there. And this year was the 70th anniversary of the Universal De- Declaration of Human Rights. Mm-hmm. And he was very intrigued by the film and asked if he could present it to his colleagues at the Permanent Mission of Canada to the UN. And they also loved it. And this film was screened on September 20th uh, in Geneva, Switzerland, at the United Nations on behalf of Canada. 
I'll, I'll interrupt you just there. We'll pick that up on the other side of the break. I'm speaking with Ryan Boyko. He is the director of That Never Happened, Canada's first national internment operations. Stay with us. Ryan Boyko is in conversation. We're talking about That Never Happened, Canada's first national internment operations. It's a film about the Ukrainian people that were interned in camps during 1914 and 1920, and the numbers are staggering. 88,000 people were forced to register, and more than 8,500 were wrongfully imprisoned in concentration camps across Canada. And uh, I had to interrupt you at the, the end of the last break here, but you were talking that it had been screened in Switzerland as part of a UN initiative. Yeah, uh, so it's a, it's a pretty amazing thing for, for us as filmmakers, as storytellers, um, to have your work recognized on the global scale. And so this this film was the official selection of the permanent mission of Canada to the UN uh, for the September conference, which just wrapped up here in Geneva. Uh, and it was for the 70th anniversary of the Declaration of Human Rights. And our film was Canada's contribution to the UN. And, uh, you know, we, we are used to, we've gone to several um, film festivals all throughout North America, and we're, so we're used to the question and answer period, and and having uh, you know a whole bunch of people ask different questions about the film, mm-hmm. what it is, um, how how it is, etc. And uh, what we found is we were having the same kind of response, but we were not aware that that's kind of unusual uh, from the delegates of the UN uh, right. to and talk and ask questions uh, at this type of thing. So uh, we we are aware that it really resonated and it resonated with people from all over the world. The film is called That Never Happened, Canada's First National Interment Operations. Let's talk about some of the specific stories that you explored for the film. Uh, how do you research them? All the survivors are gone. So you talk to relatives, you use historical documents. How do you How do you begin a project like this? Well, there there are um, there are researchers who have done the work, who have gone to all of the archives in Canada, Great Britain, the United States, the Vatican. There are records, but they are there. There is not one complete record anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so they've been able to find records, you know, smattered about, and we worked with these researchers. Uh, in fact, they're they're interviewed in the film, um, as well as other people who are doing interesting things. Like we've got an archaeologist, Sarah Bollier, who uh, is at the Morrissey internment camp, which is one of the camps that that the internees themselves had to build. They had to put up their own barbed wire fences. Imagine and, that. Uh, Imagine yeah. what goes through your mind as you're it, building your own prison. It, it's it's shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and in fact, she found a photo that. The, the only way that you can tell the difference between the guards and the prisoners is the guards are the ones with the guns. Mm-hmm. But they, they look the same. They're dressed the same. They're from the same community. Um, so it's, it's pretty interesting when you look at it through a different lens and try and see, you know, we look at it through the lens of a sculptor, sculptor John Boxtel, who uh, he is Dutch. He is not directly related to the to this story um, however his father was in a World War II uh, concentration camp 
And so when he heard the story, he said, you know, I want, I want to be involved and I want, uh, I want to make sculptures for, to commemorate these individuals. Mm-hmm. And so we, we talk about John and John's experience. So through the experience of an artist, uh, Michelle Lockery is a muralist who also, she started just being a muralist interested in this story. Can I paint this thing? And then as she was doing research, found out that uh, she was actually an internee descendant through going through papers, found that her great uncle had been interned. Wow. You know, so we were able to piece things together just by asking questions. And um, we talked, go back to the title again. I mean, I wasn't the only person who was told that this had never happened. Mm -hmm. Um, As we were interviewing people, that that was a common theme. And it wasn't just uh, school teachers that were telling people that it hadn't happened. It, w- it was government officials telling people that it hadn't happened. And this is Canada. We don't do things like that in Canada. We've never done things like that in Canada. And people simply refusing to accept that things, things like this have happened. And we're now at a place in history where we're able to actually talk about about these things. You know, 50 years ago or 60 years ago, the government destroyed the records. And this year, the government showed this film uh, at the United Nations. So that tells you how far we've come. And if we look at the government alone, um, this film was started with the help of the conservative government. Um, Jason Kenney opened many, many doors for us uh, as, uh, you know, the Canadian military uh, embraced us. We were able to get access to Parks Canada. And then we moved on to to the current government, which has also supported the film. So uh, it has really been uh, an incredible experience for us to be able to work with government at these levels and tell this kind of story and have support from all parties. That is quite a journey from that never happened to getting official government uh, you know, support. Has there been an official government response? Has Canada ever said, okay, listen, this happened and, you know, we're sorry? There has been an official acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. Uh, there has never been an official apology. Right. Uh, and no one has ever really asked for an official apology, uh, to, to be honest with yeah. you. One of the individuals in the film who is no longer with us says that we deserve a, an apology, and I, I chose to put that in there because that's his belief. Um, but the fact that there is acknowledgement, the fact that uh, you know films like this are being created, the fact that there is now an internment recognition fund where people can go and uh, get grants in order to research their own family history, to create art projects, to create research papers. You know, these are these are kinds of things that you know it's 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 pretty incredible that the government has allowed this to happen and that uh, we are able to tell these stories in, in a way that it's about memory versus apology. Because an apology happens one day, one time, and that's it. Mm-hmm. So what has actually happened here is is a recognition fund in order to ensure that it is recognized going forward. And, and a permanent record. And you a know, permanent a record. permanent record of this. It's like the, the Holocaust project that Steven Spielberg put together, where he said, I want this to be 
a permanent record of things that happened. Future generations can look back at this and and see the stories from, you know, from a very personal point of view. And I think that's important. Yeah, absolutely. I would completely agree with that. Now, the stories must have been hard to hear as you were as you were putting this together. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, adults that were taken away. Uh, men and women, uh, children were also in these camps, and that must have been difficult to hear about. Yeah, it was. Um, we actually did a web series a couple of years ago where we went to all of these former internment camps and filmed kind of what was left, but did a web series where we told the complete story of each camp with a beginning, middle, and end in under five minutes, kind mm. of YouTube generation idea. Yep. And when this was done, I felt like, you know, we, we had really really done a good job for what happened at each camp, but there were a couple of key elements that were missing, which was um, what happened to the women and children, uh, and why does it matter today? Why is it important? Why should we care? And so that's why the documentary came out of out of that web series. Uh, you know, we basically took the best little bits of about 24 minutes of the web series, and then, then we were like, okay, well, we have to get the rest. And while we were doing the web series, we met a woman called Kathy Baudet, and she lives up in Sault Ste. Marie. She's one of the people who was told that there was never an internment camp in Sault Ste. Marie, mm-hmm. and, and there was. And uh, so as we were talking to her, we got a little bit of uh, side information, not while we were filming, but while we were, we were having lunch uh, with her. And she started to tell us about her great-grandmother. And her great-grandmother was the wife of an internee who had been taken away from his family. He had four small children. He was, uh, you know, working on Whitefish Island or living on Whitefish Island and working around the community as an internee while his wife, you know, struggled to put food on Mm -hmm. the table. When we come back, we'll, we'll pick up that story when we come back. I'm in conversation with Ryan Boyko, director of That Never Happened, Canada's first national internment operations. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Ryan Boyko. The film is called That Never Happened, Canada's First National Interment Operations. Uh, This is a part of history that is not well known. In fact, when Ryan Boyko was in high school as a teen and asked his teacher about Ukrainian people that had been put in internment camps, he was told that never happened. And that uh, was one of the things and just one of the many things that spurred him on to make this film. And you can see this film uh, in a number of different places. This will air around uh, uh, Remembrance Day. And where can people see it around Remembrance Day, Ryan? Yeah, so we're, we're all across Canada. Um, we've got uh, a screening in Fernie, B.C., which is where one of the internment camps uh, was. Yep. Um, we're going to be in Calgary. We're going to be in Burlington, um, Mississauga, uh, Ottawa, Saskatoon. will be there the 9th, 10th, and 11th. Edmonton, the 9th, 10th, and 12th. Uh, Regina, the 10th and 11th. And then we're going to be finishing at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights in Winnipeg on November 11th, after which it will be available on digital um, iTunes, Google Play, and Amazon in the United States. Uh, and that will be on November 13th. And so, is there a website where people can double-check those dates? Yeah, go to armisticefilms.com. That's uh, armistice as in the end of the war, mm-hmm. A-R-M-I-S-T-I-C-E, 
Films, F-I-L-M-S dot com. Now, I interrupted you in the middle of a story. We ran out of time. So we were talking about uh, an interned man who had a wife and four children. Yeah. And so uh, this is one of the stories that we heard a little bit while we were filming our web series uh, about this uh, woman's grandmother and or great-grandmother and how she had to deal with um, feeding her kids, her four kids, mm-hmm. while her husband was away in prison. And I just felt like we really needed to add to this story. And um, my co-producer, co-writer, Diana Cofini, while we were researching up at Spirit Lake, um, there's a, a John Boxdell statue up there, and it's this interned woman holding a baby with a, a, a little child um, beside her. And Diana said, well, we really have to tell this woman's story. And when we heard uh, Kathy Bodette's great-grandmother's story, the story of Nastia Corny, Diana said, this is it. We have, to, we have to go back and we have to talk to, to Kathy and we have to see if we, can, if we can get that story and make it work with, within the film. And it really, really does. And uh, it, it's a very interesting family story. And uh, after Kathy saw it, when we played at the Hot Dog Cinema in Toronto, uh, Kathy saw it and she said, uh, thank you guys. I, I feel like my great-grandmother can finally be at rest. Huh. And how does that make you feel? It's, it's pretty emotional. I think we did a, we did a good job. We did a, a good thing for that family. And do you think that in some ways, I mean, we started off this interview with a question about you as a teenager in Saskatchewan wanting little to do with your Ukrainian heritage. Uh, What have you learned about your Ukrainian heritage through this process? And and it it feels now like you've moved light years away from that teen who wanted nothing to do with it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm actually very involved in the Ukrainian community in Canada. we're trying currently with the Canadian government to get a co-production treaty for film between Canada and Ukraine, and mm-hmm. it's very close to being signed. Uh, and I've been on the forefront of, of that and making that happen. Um, I've been working with companies in Ukraine in order to you know, build a relationship for film in Canada. Um, and that's just one of the many byproducts of of this and uh, you know very involved with the community um and you know trying very hard to learn the language and speak it better um you know because my teenage self didn't really want anything to do with it that's right and, and it wasn't my, hip enough or something yeah, yeah. My, my my vocabulary is not where it should be i can understand pretty well but uh you know don't have the practice to speak it as much and what was the most challenging part then of making this movie? Because there's so many moving parts. It's a web series. There's levels of government involved. You had the cooperation of of the Canadian military. There's travel. There's stories. There's research. What was the single hardest part? Well, the single hardest part in any film is raising the funds. Yeah, uh, it's fi- it's finding the people who care about the things that you care about, and. It, it's got to be a, more about philanthropy than about profit. Um, and so if we can find the people who are interested in the things that we're doing and the things that we're creating, then it makes it a lot easier. Um, after, after you've secured the money, then, of course, yeah, logistics. It's across Canada. It's, it's Nanaimo to Halifax mm-hmm. and everywhere in between. 
But then there's also the fact that it wasn't just Ukrainians that were interned. You know, there were there were 8,579 people who were so-called enemy aliens that were interned. Um, but there was also Ukrainians being the the top uh, number. There was over 5,000 of those that were Ukrainians. But there was also Alevi Kurds. There was Armenians. There were Bulgarians, Croatians, uh, Czechs, Germans, Hungarians, Italians, Jews, uh, Ottoman Turks. Um, Poles, Romanians, uh, ethnic Russians, Serbians, Slovaks, Slovenes, and a few others that we don't yet know. And as research is ongoing, we're starting to learn what those people identified as. But because they came to Canada with that Austro-Hungarian passport, uh, they were interned or seen as enemy aliens because Canada was at war with the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, many of these people came to Canada to flee the Austro-Hungarian mm-hmm. Empire. So for me, as as a creator, as a filmmaker, as a Ukrainian, but also as a Canadian, I felt it was very important that we don't uh, skip all of these other right. people that were interned. And we also chose not to put um, who was interned specifically in the credits at the end because we know that we're starting to find more and more people. And in fact, we, we have found that there was a Bosnian interned um, since this film was made. So the research is ongoing and we didn't want, we didn't want to really date it. We didn't want it to be the be all and end all. We would rather people go to the websites and, and read who was there. um, And it'll be up updated as as quickly as things are updated uh, versus putting it in a film. Well, we can't update that very often, if ever. And so this is an ongoing process then for you? It's it's an ongoing process. Uh, I don't know how much more there is for me. Um, mm-hmm. We've got a feature film on the same subject that we are very close to uh, closing the financing gap on, and that will be filmed um, with our Ukrainian partner in Ukraine. And it will be telling this Canadian story um, from from this perspective of a feature narrative uh, story of two brothers. And that film is called Enemy Aliens at the moment, and it may change its title uh, as as we go forward. But uh, uh, that's very close. Um, but the the research is definitely ongoing, and it's ongoing. Um, through the Canadian First World War Internment Recognition Fund. And that fund is uh, based out of Winnipeg. They are through the Shevchenko Foundation. And uh, their website is internmentcanada.ca. So if anybody listening is interested in this subject and interested in learning more, or if they know that somebody in their family was interned, but they've never had anybody to talk to about it, um, then I would go to internmentcanada.ca, which is a very simple, easy website. Mm-hmm. And you can find more research there and contact information for for various different people um, who can help help you with that. Now, you talk about a feature film. I, I don't think we can let you go. We've only got a couple of minutes left here. But you are also an actor. You're not just a director and a filmmaker yep. Yep. and... Yep historian and all that other stuff. Uh, you're an actor. Will you uh, will you direct or star, or will you pull like a Bradley Cooper and direct and star in the film? 
Well, the the direct and star and produce and co-write uh, is is a very difficult thing to do. Yeah. Uh, so at at this point, the plan is and has been since the beginning to act in it. Um, but if if we get to a point where I feel like the director isn't um, isn't able to tell the story the way I see it, then I would bow out as an actor and direct it instead. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And do you see yourself primarily on one side of the camera or the other in future? Um, in future, uh, I think after after all of this is done, I will be in front of the camera or on the stage for a while, and uh, you know, just get back to my roots, and then and then back. Um, I, I see myself going back and forth. Um, I really enjoyed the process of creating. The documentary. I've really enjoyed the process of working towards creating the feature narrative film. Um, there's, there's a lot of creativity that goes on behind the scenes that people never ever have mm-hmm. the opportunity to see, and uh, so that for me is something that I've I've really enjoyed. I've really enjoyed not just learning it, but achieving um, achieving it and achieving the knowledge and being able to share that knowledge with others. And, you know, that's something that I, I really enjoy. And I mean, acting will always be my first love. I've wanted to be an actor since I was three years old, and I've had some success with it, uh, both on stage and both on camera. Yeah. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's something that I will always do and I will always continue to do. This has just been a simply, simply a pause for me in order to tell this story. And a passion project, too, I imagine. Absolutely. Absolutely a passion project. I have been in conversation with Ryan Boyko. The film is called That Never Happened, Canada's First National Internment Operations. Uh, tell me again the, the website that people can check just to make sure that they have all the dates for the yep. showings in their area. It is armisticefilms.com. Armistice as in Armistice Day, uh, Remembrance Day, November 11th. So Armistice Films, A R M I S. T-I-C-E-F-I-L-M-S.com. Ryan, thank you so much for this. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening, and my thanks to Andre on the board. We'll talk again next week.